Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tia House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Shazia Hafiz Ramji, and I'm a research assistant for the Tia House Project. Today, we continue our interview with David Chariandi, the author of the novels Sukuyant and Brother, and the memoir I've Been Meaning to Tell You. This is the second part of a two-part interview that was originally recorded in the summer of 2022 on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Sealwatooth peoples, colonially known as Vancouver. In this interview, David tells us about the two books he's working on and how he's challenging conventions of realism embedded in practices such as oil painting and, of course, narrative. We briefly return to David's first novel, Sukuyan, in a discussion about the ethics of editing specifically in a passage where two women take a road trip together in Ontario and are hassled at the American border. How they return to Canada is a troubling question, the gravity of which is conveyed by David's careful editorial choices. But first we begin by returning to David's strange pathway as a writer, and I solicit his insights on the advice he would have given to his younger self before he encountered the late Austin Clark and Dion Brand, who supported him when he was an emerging writer and who continue to inspire his thinking. David, if you could tell yourself if you could tell a younger version of yourself anything before you encountered Austin and Dion, what would you tell that younger version of yourself? It's a great question. I'm just thinking how how hard it is to, to answer because that that um, you know, strange path that I navigated in order to become a writer did constitute me, you know, for mm. whatever for good and bad. It's been uh, it's it shaped how I write and how I think about writing and and were I to go back so many times of course I'd think oh well wouldn't it have been wonderful if I if I if I met a community of writers when I was younger mm. you know or um, if I sat in a creative writing workshop the way the creative writing workshops now look at least at SFU and many other places Guelph mm. you know it's lots of people of color it's people of all kinds of backgrounds you know kind of thinking through what mm. it is to write. And so, but maybe I had to strain against the text that did not want to, 
did not want to acknowledge me in the same way as some amazing art comes from that strain against a text. The most extreme example that I can think of right now is, is uh, Nervesi Phillips' song, mm. you know, it's a text mm. uh, about a horrific kind of legal text right. out of that to, to generate this powerful work. Mm -hmm. So maybe I needed to, in a different way, a very, very different way, as I'm saying, you know, maybe I had to, that, I had to kind of encounter what I encountered in order to become the writer, mm. the writer that I am. I would, I would simply say that if you have, you know, if you have the passion, if you want to continue reading and writing, uh, try to, try to know that that is, um, is, um, is a worthy thing to do. And maybe that's the, that was the hardest thing for me, mm. that I, I couldn't believe that it was a worthy thing to do. I thought it was a, a foolish, a, a lazy, a, you know, just a, um, you know, kind of a, a bad thing to do. Firm, but also requisitely modest belief in the worthiness of what we do um, is, is not a bad thing. How do you manage to stay so humble? <laughs> You're always so humble and oh, modest. I have to. No, I have to. I have. I no. I, I. I. How could I? How could I be otherwise? I mean, how? I'm surrounded by amazing writers. You know, I was never. You know, Shazia, I was never as brilliant as as you are now when I was your age. <laughs> you know, uh, so there's you know there's people like you being humble. Uh, you know, or um, you know, someone like Dion, like. How can I, 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 I'm among these brilliant, brilliant writers, or, or Canicia Lubrin, or, uh, there's just so many people that, that how, how dare I think that I'm um, so special? It's just not true. I mean, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'm working at my own thing. Um, it has its own it's a particular need driving it. I have to be humble because if you get swollen headed, you're gonna you're gonna be a bad artist. Mm. You know, you just are. Um, you have to have a certain amount of confidence that, or, or just some sort of belief. Again, um, mm. that's why maybe it's a it's a humble belief, but you have to have that belief. But you know, that it just happens. I see it that you know it happens with artists and it happens with critics. The moment you start thinking, oh, I am just, <laughs> I am just brilliant and the best and there's no checks on, on, on what I do and I don't have to keep thinking each different project I have to keep thinking mm. about what I'm doing I guess it's to me that's the only way yeah that's the only way yeah we'll see when the movie brother comes out you'll be like oh is that Shazia I don't even remember her oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. no no you know and, and the movie brother is you know it's not it's uh, you know lucky again that a really 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 talented uh, filmmaker Clement Virgo mm. when he said you know growing up uh, black in Toronto I saw something in your book and I wanted to then write the film wow. and that's what he did but I you know it's his project I, I really have no connection to and I can't um, you know, I can't be, I certainly can't be praised in any way if, if the mm. film is a good film. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a lot of faith in him, but I, I haven't seen it, I have no idea. But I, I you know, I, he's, he's such a, he's such a thoughtful person and really talk about, uh, you know, humbleness. It's, mm. you know, I saw him doing a book talk thing. I think the Giller did this kind of panel with a bunch of people who, who done a kind of book to film. Mm. And he was one of the people, and he's, you know, I just was listening to him, and he's just so incredibly 
humble, but he's done a lot of stuff. He's like di directed my favorite episodes of The Wire, for instance. And, oh, wow. and he's collaborated with so many different people, and, and his film Rude is really mm -hmm. something that kind of, I could, you, I think you could describe as inaugurating a new kind of stage of black Canadian filmmaking, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, ultimately, um, you know, I'm a writer trying to you know, wrestling with that next book, and that's right. that's really where I'm at. Two books, right? One about the reading, one about the yeah, historic, the yeah, explorer. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's okay. So, so the there's the one about the explorer. There's a set of a book that's four chapters about a kind of like a the mix between auto fiction and auto theory. Oh. Uh, that's about kind of uh, navigating stages oh. in the academy. So the mm. first semester, and then. Uh, kind of like third year when you kind of the character's awakening I or the character is awakening into um, a new type of understanding of what writing can be. Mm. I think I spoke a little bit about that. Then as a PhD candidate and then as a newly hired professor. Mm. And um, I, I've written most of this already and I'm actually quite excited about it. Uh, I don't know who will read it, maybe only people who gone through the Just, just one thing. person. No, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> who are yeah? Who are interested? Yeah, no, we're interested. You know, maybe I, I would. Yeah, I, I, I'd be really curious to know what you think of it. Be, yeah, talk about you know people you want you would love to know what they think about it because of course you doing a PhD right now. Yeah, and as a guidebook. Writer, as a, no, no, it's, it wouldn't be that. You'd be laughing at how foolish I am, and that's that's the kind of the tone. It, it is really about not about foolishness. It's very much about the flawed attempts to navigate each one of those phases. Mm and to kind of find one's way in, obviously, also a flawed institution. I mean, I guess I've lived, you know, worked my entire life in this institution, gone through it for such a long period of time, talking about the academy. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a challenge, as you know, as you know very well, you know, what is that, that, that balance between the foothold it gives us, at least it, it gave me right. a place to read and think and write and encounter other people who are doing the same and discipline ourselves to a type of thinking and work, mm -hmm. but also how the language of language and the disciplinarity and the discourses we find in the academy seem to oftentimes war mm. against the type of writing that we want to do and we need to do. And I've always felt that way, so I guess the book is coming out of that. That's amazing. We need more books like that, and like even Dion Brown's theory is just yeah, so yeah, yeah, wild. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the pieces <coughs> came out of a talk I gave that was kind of in a loving response to, to theory. Mm. And um, you know, in, in theory, Dion you know, quotes uh, four dissertations, you know, mine, Ronaldo's, oh, wow. um, some of Leslie Saunders and Christina Sharp's. Mm. It's you know what a what a profound honor to be quoted, you know, but of course by Dion Rand in, in a book, but and it's a piece of the dissertation. Uh, but of course the kind of the the joke, which is a, it's a very, uh, you know, it's my own interpretation of it, <laughs> but it's the, you know, it, it, it theory is about someone who is ultimately in an existential struggle with the discourse of the academy mm. and kind of going through a type of crisis, and that's how I felt, you know, writing my, my dissertation, you know, what am I doing, how, how does this line up with the work that I'm doing. Mm. Um, how can I how can I make this book this dissertation was on Black Canadian literature and on Dion's work mm. in, in part. Uh, how can I honor that work and say in the dissertation what it actually means to me 
at such a deep level. And I don't think the ancient tradition does that. I really don't. Um, and, but how could it? And so it's, it's uh, you know, Dion's book is really, in an exemplary way, kind of teasing that out and playing with that, you know, the, the challenges of doing the work we want to do in the academy, in that space, and wrestling with those languages at once. You know, we're drawn to it because they offer, um, they offer answers and they offer um, processes of getting mm -hmm. to answers, I guess. But they also, yeah, but at the same time, not. <laughs> most, most definitely not at the same time, too, I think is what Dion was, was getting at. At least that's how I felt. And my dissertation, kind of, as meaningful as it, it was for me, it also is the not. <laughs> The term research creation has come to be recognized as a legitimate approach across disciplines in academia, in granting institutions, and in think tanks. In How to Make Art at the End of the World, a manifesto for research creation, Natalie Loveless points out that the term took hold in Quebec in 1980, starting at UCAM, or L'Université du Québec à Montréal. It was slowly integrated into Quebec's Arts Councils in the 1990s and later taken up by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Shirk describes research creation as an approach to research that combines creative and academic practices and supports the development of knowledge and innovation through artistic expression, scholarly investigation, and experimentation. David and I talk about research creation or creative praxis in academia. David's first novel, Sucuyon, was written five years after his graduate dissertation, but he served in the Committees for Research Creation Dissertations by writers such as Otonia Okot-Bitek and Jordan Abel, among several others. I'd like to caution listeners that you may hear several loud thumps in this segment. This is David emphasizing his points against the desk. These thumps have deliberately been left undiminished and unaltered. Obviously, doing uh, obvious to me, doing a type of uh, extraordinary uh, analysis and creation mm -hmm. in the dissertation. So, you know, Jordan Abel is one of those one of those people, uh, which became, in fact, a version of it became um, uh, Nishka, mm. a profoundly important book, and just you know, I. I um, so the lesson to me in serving on that committee, and all I did was sit there and read his brilliant work, so that's, that's all I'm saying I did. Um, but it was a great honor to be able to be entrusted to do that. Um, the lesson there was in kind of um, being shown how uh, a different way of writing a dissertation could yield such powerful, powerful work. 
But I guess that, that you know, that's, that's also drawing not from so much from research creation as it is from uh, indif- indigenous methods. Right. One of the things that's just coming to my mind right now is that with research creation, one of the major issues is that lots of writers have to legitimize their knowledge. Right. And that legitimizing process is like a whole extra work and labor in itself oh, as yeah. opposed to just doing the work. Yeah, know? yeah. I think absolutely. I think absolutely. That's a, that's a huge thing. And so this work of, even though you're trying to do research, you're, you're having to become a, an educator mm. um, for, for, for the people, perhaps, you know, uh, overseeing your dissertation. If not, not your committee necessarily, because maybe, maybe you'd be lucky enough to get people on that. But then, you know, the structures who then, the eyes on it beyond right. that, to, is this really a dissertation? And, and also, you know, like the connection, I think that, that always awkward connection between the market and the institution. Mm. Are we doing work that, you know, like, like uh, I've just mentioned, Antonia's dissertation, uh, Jordan's dissertation, is so, so deeply critical and uncompromised in, in the depth of its research and what it's doing? Or would the academy like it if we produced, you know, marketable mm. kind of end products? And just slot into um, how they understand their connections to to uh, yeah to the, to the corporate world. In the Black Tudors, the Untold Story, a book of history by Miranda Kaufman, learn about Africans in England in the 1500s. One of them was Diego the Circumnavigator an escaped enslaved man who was taken aboard the ship of Sir Francis Drake, the English slave trader and explorer, and who helped him circumnavigate the world. David talks to us about Diego and Drake, and the various histories, art histories, and authors like Carol Phillips, who are influencing his work in progress, a book of historical fiction. This book that I'm working on, there's history and then there's also art history that's helping me. Mm. And, you know, the, what I found a, a kind of an opportunity to reflect upon is how history of Western art, let's say visual art, which I'm no expert in, uh, absolutely not, um, but I'm finding, I'm finding interesting, is the kind of the, the rise of um, the figure, mm. the rise of certain conventions around um, you know, let's call it realism in art. I'm using that term to co- try to correspond to realism in, in, in fiction. And um, that to me is also kind of, what's interesting for me in that novel is that, you know, maybe uh, not DaCosta, but another black figure that I'm, that I'm conjuring, I guess, mm. of that time, um, is a woman who's living in uh, Seville, just before the time of, say, uh, someone like Velasquez, or. Uh, but certainly a lot of Spanish painting mm. is happening. And, and Seville being one of the great port cities, um, mm. uh, great in a positive and negative way, um, which is the sheer amount of capital and goods kind of flowing from to the, right. the, the new world, uh, quote unquote. I guess confronting the rise of the figure mm. and the rise of a certain mimesis in, um, in notion of mimesis in uh, Western painting has become a way for me to try to confront narrative Hmm. and the legacies of novelistic realism in the work that I do. 
And of course, I'm going to feel the same way you do and say that, yeah, look at this legacy that I'm that I'm kind of drawing upon, mm. and look at, um, you know, what was Walter Benjamin's point? You know, there's no such, there's no work of art, no great work of art that isn't a testament to barbarism. Mm. Um, uh, in that, you know, just the, the wealth, but also the the um, the ways of seeing that produce these great works of um, right. of Renaissance art are also testaments to uh, the barbarism right. of European expansion at that time. And you can see it in those, because in the margins, you'll sometimes see mm. black figures. You'll see yeah. certainly yeah. colonial objects. You'll see this and that. And even the, the way of seeing, the technology of seeing, might be, mm. might be um, itself part of the, um, the, the, the colonial project. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, but then how, how to... How then might a person in that moment, utterly marginalized from that, mm -hmm. um, think of of herself as engaging with the world of art? What? Wow. How, how might that person even begin to do something like that? Right. As a way for me also to think, uh, in a, again, in a duly humble way, how am I engaging with um, the the kind of the legacies of novelistic realism? Mm. as it ties to a, a, a specific legacy of, again, of colonial expansion, of, of colonial education, colonial meaning, and all of the things that we started this interview with, and kind of the questions of resolution and character right. and whatnot that, um, that, you know, are, that lie against the, both the complexities and the, the powers and also the vulnerabilities of our lives. Right. As you were talking, I just remember this time when I was in Dublin and I saw this painting. It was, I think, from the early 18th century of a black man. Um, it was like an oil painting, a bust, up to the bust. And he was wearing a turban. Um, but what I noticed about his face and the way that he was painted was that he had tears in his eyes. And the tears were the like the most, the most distinctive feature about the painting. And I couldn't... I couldn't understand why that painting irritated me so much because clearly it was empathetic. And then, you know, a year later after I thought about it a little more, I was like, because I, it irritated me because that is, that isn't really about the black person in that painting. It mm. is about the painter saying, I am so sensitive and I have the sensibility that allows me to recognize this person that I painted this. And look, I recognize the tears in his face. Like, yeah. I, it's my mark. Yeah. You know, it's not about him. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like that's kind of how I feel. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's a really, it's I, a, yeah, you're, 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 uh, you're addressing precisely what I'm wrestling with. A couple characters in my book are wrestling with, uh, both contemporary characters really living now and mm. looking back upon these por portraits, both in the margins and occasionally individually, of mm. black people in the Renaissance being uh, painted in some sort of way. Wow. And of course, as the legacy goes onward, you know, to the to 18th century, 19th century, mm. you'll see these these representations as well. It's a complex thing because you know when you when you look at that painting. Um, said there's a war going on. It's it's the recognition of, of at least when I'm looking at some of them. I wouldn't say all, but some of them, the uh, recognition of the humanity and the presence mm. in that space. And you can't help but think, whoa! Like what was that person 
mm. doing? Who was that person? All of these, I would describe them as narrative questions. Mm. You know, so I want thinking now of a story for that vanished individual who might not even have a name in that painting. Mm. Might be, you know, the, you know, the, the name you give to black people. That might okay. be the title of the painting, um, or um, or be untitled or servant or something like that. And so you can, one can see, at least I can see, how narrative then becomes something that I, you know, I want to operate with. Mm. Because maybe I want to, I want to imagine. I want to. I want there to be something more than just the image. Mm. Um, I want there to be life. But then there's a there's a kind of a, con, uh, a conflicting pressure, which is maybe we can't um, easily or maybe entirely narrate those figures because they're so compromised by the gaze upon right. them. They're so compromised by the, the will of the of the artist, mm. um, uh, by by all kinds of things that um, as as we can can we always kind of take the, the names and the figures out of ledgers and and quote unquote humanize them? Mm. Maybe we can't do that, and that's the, the powerful insight for me of someone like Sadea Hartman or Christina Sharp. They they write about this quite you know in, in ways that are you know far beyond how I. I might now um, try to try to go into that, but there is a there is a contradiction there, mm. and and I think working with that contradiction because I think, I you know, why why shouldn't I want that story? Why shouldn't I want that figure? Why why should I abandon that figure mm. um, to to the white gaze? Mm -hmm. um, what about me just simply seeing that figure? Maybe there is suddenly, even if it's poorly executed. Even if it's com constrained in some sort of way, can I imagine that I, I can see I as a black person seeing that see the humanity in a mm. way that even the artist had no ability to see, mm. did not want to portray, but I can see it. It's coming through against the very wishes of the person that's painted that. Mm. Um, that and it's it's that 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 thin thinnest thread of of recognition going from me to that person lost in history. I'd like to imagine that, um, and I am imagining that, um, but it's a problematic imagining at the same time, and that's okay as long as I kind of keep that in mind as I'm, mm. as I'm, as I'm doing it. Thank you for that, David. I'm, I'm so, I'm so, I love talking again <laughs> with you. you know, I think, I think that's, you know, I think I should interview you next time. <laughs> right? I think that's, and maybe I should speak My humility less. is gone. <laughs> oh, I think, it, I think it'd be great. <laughs> it's exciting that you're thinking about the 16th century, because that's, um, have you read The Black Tudors? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. Have you read it? Yeah. I've read parts of it. I think you're the only yes. person who's read that book besides, that I know. I haven't read it. I've read parts of it. Yeah, what did you read? Did you, um, I, one thing that I'm actually using <laughs> There's this one guy, Diego, who was Francis Drake, hmm. you know, kind of English explorer, um, circumnavigated kind of South America. And there's this theory by kind of conservative people here in, in Vancouver, at least one conservative person, that I, as far as I can recall, that, oh, well, uh, you know, and it's kind of like the way this, this mind works, the colonial mind. It's like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, it wasn't Vancouver or whoever was the first person, white person, that, of course, they mean to see you right. know, these lands. Um, and of course, the, the violence and discovery is already announcing itself in that. It was like centuries before Sir Francis Drake 
came up, and he describes the coast that they uh, that, and this kind of rainy kind of area that uh, cold and rainy place, and, and it, it could be have, have been Francis Drake, and then someone found a coin, like a, an English coin of the sand somewhere and said, oh yeah, here's the proof that, that maybe he did. So most historians just laugh at that. But what was great about the Black Tudors is that um, I heard this theory and couldn't care less. You know, I couldn't care less what, you know, what, what white person saw, what <laughs> shore, you know, unsaw, and of course unsaw a presence already there. On the, on his ship, in fact, was someone named Diego, who was a black person acting as his navigator. And so if he did make it here, it's very possible that it wasn't he, it was Diego that spotted, you know, this land, which right. would have been which would have been interesting. It would have been the first black person to kind of spot, you know, back in the in the late fifteen hundreds or so. The sadder part of the story is that there were also th at least three other black people on the ship, um, two and uh, including a woman who was pregnant. Uh, they kind of uh, picked up this a woman, um, her name is Mary, uh, Mary uh, Marie, and um, she was kind of abandoned on an island in the Pacific while pregnant at some point. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's no story about her, but of course one can imagine there's the, the horrific kind of circumstances being on, you know, kind of kept on the ship. You know, something got, you know, something with research like the Black Tudors kind of offers, which is that um, you can piece together a, a slightly more complex history. Uh, and it's the history of black people being not involved in the same way in, mm. in the kind of, uh, in, uh, in colonialism, but I think the term that could be um, used is conscripts of modernity. Mm. That's a term mm. that um, um, David Scott uses, he's a Caribbean thinker. Conscripts of modernity, you are conscripted yeah, into, yeah, into, into this project. Mm. And then so, so now, the big question then is how do we how do we live and how do we imagine differently? How are you managing so much time in your historical novel? Is it separate? Um, like is it book one, book two, or different character perspectives? Or uh, it is different. It's three different character perspectives, um, and then three different dips into the past. Mm. Each character has a different character that they kind of imagine. Uh -huh. uh, and, um, so it's very, you know, it's very, it's not a typical historical novel where it's like a really um, fulsome treatment. It's more mm -hmm. of the glimpses. Mm. And, you know, that's, not, that's all I do anyway, I just do glimpses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what you, what you just said, how you described it about them, you know, seeing, it reminded me of Crossing the River by Carol Phillips. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, know yeah. if that, are yeah, you yeah, thinking yeah. about that right now? Yeah, yeah, I, I know, I've, I've thought of that and also, um, Nature of Blood, also by Carol Phillips, mm, and he and he kind of does the same thing. It's different historical periods, and kind of cool characters right. kind of are interrupted by different kind of things in the past. And Dale Bryan also gave me another book. It's called Counter Narratives. Oh, or, John Keane. Yeah, John Keane. Yeah. I didn't know it. I, I heard about it, but I hadn't read it before. She said, "Oh, you have to read it." And that's another kind of interesting book of just mm. kind of different moments, kind of putting them together in a certain way. Yeah, that's that must come up when you do the editing, right? Because if you if you said like earlier when you began talking, you said you write, you know, you dump right yeah, all, yeah. all at once, and then how do you know where to break the narrative? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that really is. You know, I really am pushing these, not only pushing the words around, and 
but I'm also um, editing. Oh, and that's, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think if I was a, like a filmmaker, just because I've been thinking a little bit more about film these days, uh, but I know nothing about it, and I'm, you know, just it's just not my thing. But I think I would be an editor if I was a filmmaker. I think hmm. that's what I, you know, so you, people go out there, shoot all kinds of stuff, like shoot hundreds of hours of stuff, and bring it to me, and I will now go through it, and I will piece together what, how it, how it works, mm. and I will try different versions of it, and I'll keep messing with with order and whatnot, and eventually I'll get to something if I don't, you know, really kind of drive myself, mm. you know, to 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 despair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's all, yeah, editing. Yeah. All your cuts are so perfectly timed. Like even that scene in Sukuyan when um, Adele goes with Mrs. Christopher on the road trip. You know, right when that scene ends, you don't state what has happened. You cut oh, right yeah. when they meet the guards. Or yeah. You mentioned that they met the guards, and you don't know how they got out of it. But it's not explained. Your editing is incredible. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. It's funny. I think I think sometimes the editing comes from like the ethics of what I can relate, mm. and so I, I felt comfortable telling the road trip story just because it's great. You know, like you know, two black women could also have a road trip. Yeah. You know, in, in, in Ontario, when it came to what could have been a really a thing that maybe a mother wouldn't tell her son, mm. or or a traumatic thing, or you know. Then I stopped because maybe I couldn't. T I couldn't tell that. Thank you for sharing that, David. I I have already kept you over time. I am so grateful for this opportunity, and it really is always a delight. And I always learn something when I speak with you. And I'm so, so I'm really uh, I'm really grateful, Shazia. And you know I, I do have to say that you know when I when I think of uh, those people, you know, who are making such a difference for other writers, and I know this from the work that you did with the, uh, the CWC and the work that you do in review culture, uh, you know, the many reviews, many thoughtful reviews that you do with people's work. You are such a generous, uh, generous uh, person, and very, I find it very inspiring, and I know so many people uh, deeply appreciate it, so, and I think this interview has been yet another example of that generosity, oh so I want to thank you. You're so kind, David. I'm not going to be able to be humble if you keep saying that. Not fail, you, my you deserve, fail. You deserve, yeah, you deserve to be <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <Yana>. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this interview with the incredibly generous David Chariandi. I'm Shazia Hafiz Ramji, and you've been listening to Tia House Talks. Both David and myself would like to express gratitude to Ebony Magnus at Simon Fraser University for granting us space to have this conversation. Tia House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also really appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.